tackling 10 timeless truths that will transform every aspect of your life. They are timeless because they go across culture. They go from century to century. They're always going to be there, and you're going to tackle them throughout the rest of your life, but they are very important for us to understand. If Christ is sufficient, and he is, if Christ is all supreme, and he is, which is the theme of the book of Hebrews, then it will be seen in how you live your life. It will manifest itself, number one, in your compassion, number two, your commitment, and number three, your contentment, right? Those are the first three points. First one dealt with the fact that we need to respond with love to the needs of others. That's compassion. Whether we love the brethren that are among us in the church or whether we are lovers of strangers or whether we are visiting those in prison, those who are suffering, we have compassion toward those who are in need. So you respond with love to the needs of others. Number two, you reaffirm your loyalty to marriage. This is commitment. We reaffirm our loyalty to marriage. Marriage is to be honored among all, not just some, but by all. And that's so important because the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, number 7, that husbands are to honor their wives as the most precious possession that they have. So I know I'm honoring marriage when I honor my wife as my most precious possession because he who honors me, the Lord says, I will honor. And so I honor the Lord by honoring my wife. And when I honor my wife, I honor marriage and and I hold it in high esteem. I exalt it as, as the Bible says because it's God's divine institution. He goes on to talk about the fact that there'll be great judgment upon those who commit fornication and those who are adulterers. So you move from compassion to commitment to contentment. If you respond with love toward the needs of others and reaffirm your loyalty to marriage, then number three, you resist the love of money. Verse number four, excuse me, verse number five. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Resisting the love of money will be a temptation you will tackle throughout the rest of your life. Learning not to covet, learning not to be filled with greed and avarice, but to truly be content with the things that God has given to you. You know, one thing about the rich, they know something the poor don't. And that is they know that money cannot buy you happiness. The poor don't know that. But the rich do. They realize that. They realize that their riches can make them a little bit more comfortable, maybe. That would be true. Things a little bit more convenient, that would be true as well. But it can't bring you contentment. And it certainly can't bring you happiness. They know that that money can buy them a bed. But money cannot buy them sleep. They know that money can buy them a gun, but money cannot buy them security. They know that money can buy them companionship, but it cannot buy them 
friendship. They know, probably better than anyone else knows, that money can buy you medicine, but it cannot buy you health. Money can buy you pleasure, but it cannot buy you peace. Money can buy you a crucifix, but it can't buy you a savior. Because the things that are eternal cannot be purchased with things on the earth. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to emphasize a very unique point. That if Christ really is enough, if he really is sufficient, and he is supreme over all, are you content with that? Is that good enough for you? Or is there always a little bit more you must have? One author said, to whom little is not enough, nothing is ever enough. That's true. To whom little is not enough, nothing is ever enough. So the question comes, are you one who resists the love of money by being content with the things that you have? The word content is a unique word. Paul would use the Greek word because the Stoics believed that to be content, you had to be self-sufficient, satisfied, and independent. In other words, you were independent of anything external, independent from anything around you because you are satisfied and sufficient with where you're at. Paul would use that word as he talks about contentment in Philippians chapter 4 when he said that I've learned to be content in whatever state I am in. And he uses that word simply because it's not about his own self-sufficiency, but in God's sufficiency in his life. Because God's sufficiency leads to God's satisfaction, and God's satisfaction leads you not to be dependent upon external things, but completely dependent upon the God who is all-sufficient for everything. So the word sufficient, or the word adequate, the word satisfied, all the same, is that which characterizes those who resist the love of money. How about you? Are you satisfied with your salary? Or do you need just a little bit more? Are you satisfied with your home? Or do you need something a little bit bigger? Are you satisfied with the number of children you have? Or do you just need one more? Are you satisfied with what God has given to you? You see, if if Christ is all-sufficient and all-supreme, then he will be enough for me. So the Bible speaks a lot about money, believe it or not. And as it does, it explains to us many things 
that we need to be aware of. In fact, over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. <laughs> you know, think about that. It's called, it caused Demas, 2 Timothy 4, verse number 10, who loved this present world to wander away from the faith. His love for the things of the world, his love for money. How about Judas? Judas had a love for money. He was willing to betray his Lord for a certain amount of money. But no one ever believed that Judas would be that kind of guy because Judas was the most trusted of all the disciples because he held the money. Everybody thought that Judas was the most godly person, the most holy person, the most committed person. But he was the son of perdition. Because down deep he loved money. Ananias and Sapphira, they were killed in church for their love of money. They loved it so much they would lie about how much they would sell their home for. And God struck them dead in church. And so we must learn to resist the love of money. In fact, it says this in verse number 9 of 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Not those who are rich. Those who want to get rich. There's a difference, right? Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Right? All you have to do is read the scripture. Solomon was rich. Richest man who ever lived. So it's not riches that cause you to fall into temptation. It's the love of money. It's the love of riches. So he says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow. Why is that? Because riches are deceitful. We know that from the parable of the sower and the soil in Mark's gospel as the Lord speaks about the thorny soil. And how that thorny soil chokes out the seed of the gospel. For in Mark's gospel, the fourth chapter, it says this. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Riches are so deceitful, and we don't even recognize it, but they are. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, the fourth verse. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Do not weary yourself to do that. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, It is gone. For wealth can certainly make itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. How true is that? Every time I go to the gas pump, I'm like, there goes my money flying away. Spreading wings and off it goes. 
whether it's the grocery store, whether it's the gas pump, whether it's McDonald's, everything's just flying away. Is there one minute gone the next? Solomon knows this. He's, he's a rich man. In fact, he says these words in, in Proverbs chapter chapter 24. I'm sorry. My bad. Chapter 29. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. I wonder who Solomon was talking to there. How about this? Verse 22. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. In other words, he's hastening to get rich. He will do all he can to gain wealth. And when he does, he doesn't recognize that he's just going to want it all the more. Because he can never get enough of it. And so over in Proverbs chapter 11, Solomon would say these words. Proverbs chapter 11, verse number 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The Bible has so much to say about riches and wealth and the love of those things. So the writer of Hebrews comes back and says, listen, if Christ really is all sufficient for you, you have to learn to be content, satisfied with what God has given to you. Because that's going to enable you to resist the love of money. Back early on in the book of Deuteronomy, as, as Moses is reiterating the law to the nation of Israel, listen to what he says, verse number 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Beware. He's telling this to Israel. Those who had seen the, 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 the miraculous plagues in, in Egypt, those who had been taken through the wilderness for 40 years and, and seen all that God had done by providing water for them and providing food for them, taking care of them, that the, the soles of their shoes never wore out. God took care of them. So Moses said, beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied have built good houses and lived in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Beware. When your silver and your gold multiply, when your flocks multiply, when things are going really good, you know what the built-in curse that that is? You just forget all about God. You just do. 
He goes on to say this in verse number 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. God gives you power to make wealth. God gave Elon Musk the power to make wealth. Not he's smarter than you are. He's certainly not any better looking than you are. But God gave him power to make wealth. Same with Bill Gates. God gave him the power to make wealth. God does that. We forget that. So we need to understand that the root of evil is the love and the lust for more money. So I can have more things. In Luke's gospel, the 18th chapter, listen to these words. You know them well. A ruler, a rich ruler, asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 18, 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. I've done all that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ quotes the second half of the Decalogue. I've done that. I'm good. Does that mean I'm in? Does that mean I get to inherit eternal life? Because I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal. I don't lie. I've always honored my father and mother. So does that mean I'm in? Jesus says one thing you still lack. Just one. Only one. It's the only one that matters. There's one thing you lack. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. All you got to do is sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Does that mean if I, if I just give away everything that I have, I'm going to heaven? No, that's not it. That's not what Christ is saying. Christ knew that in his heart he had another God. And that God was the God of possessions and money. He was an idolater. That's why Christ didn't quote the first half of the Decalogue because it all deals with his relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. But he did. He had a God that was preeminent in his life. He had a God that made him sufficient in life. He had a God that was supreme in his life. And it wasn't the Lord God of Israel. It was his money. It was his possessions. Christ knows that. So Christ hit him where his heart is. For where your treasure is there, where your heart will be also. Verse 29 or 23 says, But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can ever be saved? Because in their day and time, they believed that wealth was a gift from God and God only blessed the righteous. And because he did, the righteous were the richest. 
Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. The Lord says, this is humanly impossible. Who can be saved? Nobody. You can't. It's absolutely humanly impossible to ever get saved. There's nothing you can do to save you. Nothing. Nothing. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Bible says to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. So I am receiving him. But you've got to read the next verse. Who are born not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. No one comes to me, Christ says in John 6, lest the Father draws him. You can't get there on your own. You can't make it on your own. And one of the big hindrances for us to see that is the riches and the wealth that we possess. Because I don't need God. I have my bank account. I can go to the doctor, any doctor I choose to. I can buy any car I want to buy. I can buy any house I want to buy. I can do whatever I want to do. I can send my kids to any school I want to send them to. Who needs God? So I express that by saying, I'm sufficient in and of myself. That's why Christ always matches man against his standard, his law. Because man needs to beg for mercy and cry out to God, I can't do that. That's what the Bible says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Can dead men speak? Nope. Can dead men think? Nope. Can dead men walk? Nope. What can dead men do? Nothing but lie there and be what? Dead. They're dead. You're born dead. You're born spiritually dead. You're incapable of doing anything spiritual. So God has to make you alive. He has to quicken you. He has to work in your heart. And when he does, you respond by faith in all that he says. That's why salvation is a supernatural work of God. It's a miracle. It's what you call a new creation, right? A new creation. That's what God does. How about this? Luke chapter 12, Christ is is waxing eloquent about the triune nature of God, the revelation of God. He's talking about the danger of false religion. He's He's just preaching as strong as he can. And you come to verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. It's almost like he couldn't wait for Jesus to take a breath. Because once Jesus took a breath, he had to insert what he had to say. Jesus, tell my brother that he must split the inheritance with me. Evidently, his brother was in the audience for his brother to hear from Jesus. So Jesus says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? I didn't come to judge between you and someone else and who gets what money and who doesn't get what. That's what what I'm here for. So he says this, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3, 5, that greed's idolatry. Be aware, be on your guard. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your very soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared. So is man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. The right of Hebrews wants these people to resist the love, the lure, the longing for money. But be content with such things as you have. Be satisfied with what God has given to you. Because he truly is the all-sufficient God of the universe. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Second Corinthians 6, verse number 10, Paul says, Having nothing, yet I possess everything. That's contentment. And so he quotes two verses, one from Joshua, one from Psalms. Remember, the writer of Hebrews does not tell you where he's quoting it from. He doesn't have to. They're Jews. They're masters of the Old Testament. So it simply says, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? He takes them back to the scriptures. Why? Because if Christ is all sufficient and supreme, everything he says is sufficient and supreme. So my time is fleeting. So let me give you six principles in six minutes. <laughs> Fat chance. What do I do? How do I resist the love of money? Six principles. You ready? First of all, there needs to be a confession of my unacceptable passion. A confession of my unacceptable passion. The love of money is an unacceptable passion. Not an acceptable one. Resist the love of money. Paul goes on to talk about Timothy being a man of God. Flee these things. The man of God cannot be a man who's the lover of money. Can't. Flee these things, young Timothy. Pursue godliness. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. But don't pursue the love of money. So there needs to be a confession of my unacceptable pursuit. I've got to recognize that my, my, my playing the lottery every week is an unacceptable pursuit. Unacceptable passion. Thinking that it's the hastening to get rich quick. We just read several verses in the book of Proverbs that speaking about against that, right? It's, it's a quick fix to my, my indebtedness. It's a quick fix to my, my financial woes. There needs to be a confession of my unacceptable passion. He who conceals the transgression will never prosper. 
but he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall find compassion. Leads to point number two. Not only is there confession of my unacceptable passion, but there is a cessation from my unfillable pursuit. A cessation from my unfillable pursuit. In other words, this pursuit is never going to fill you. Listen to what Solomon says, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 10. He who loves money will never be satisfied. Does it get any clearer than that? He who loves money will never be satisfied. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves it with abundance with its income, for this too is emptiness, vanity, worthlessness. See, I just can't confess the fact that I have an unacceptable passion. I have to cease pursuing that which cannot fill my life. He who confesses and forsakes his way will find compassion. So there's a confession and a forsaking. We can't confess our sin all the while conjuring up in our mind another avenue by which we can pursue our sin. That doesn't work. God knows your heart anyway, right? So there's a confession of my unacceptable passion, a cessation from my unfillable pursuit. To number three, a comprehension of his unfathomable person. I must learn to comprehend God. If he's all-sufficient, he's unspeakable. He's unfathomable. And therefore, I seek him and only him. I love what it says in Luke's Gospel, the 12th chapter, the 30th verse. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Wow. I wish I was that way with my children. I wish I knew what they needed before they asked me. I'm not that way. He would go on to say, if, you, if, your, fa- if, your, if your father on earth knows what you need and gives you good things while on earth, how much more will your father in heaven give you the spirit of God to those who ask him? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who is the divine comforter, who is the, who is the embodiment of all truth. He's your guide. He's your peace. When you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything. And so we need to comprehend his unfathomable person. He's not only omniscient, he's good. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's a good God. Psalm 34, verse number 10, makes it very clear. When the psalmist says this, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord should not be in any want of any good thing. Wow. Those who seek the Lord should not be in any want of anything that is good because God is good. And God, who is the author of all goodness, bestows his goodness on those who walk uprightly. 
talking about God's omnipresence, right? That's why the author quotes from the book of Joshua, I will never leave you, nor will I ever desert you. I'm always there. That's how I know what you need before you even ask me. I'm always there. Not because I see your need, because I know your need before you even put it on your tongue. I know it all. And that's why he quotes from the psalmist, Psalm 118, when he says, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's his omnipotence. See, the reason we love money is because we don't love God enough to know who he is. So there comes a confession of my unacceptable passion, a cessation of my unfillable pursuits, a comprehension of his unfathomable person. And number four, a conviction of his unalterable providence. His unalterable providence. For Samuel 2 7, the Lord makes one poor and the Lord makes one rich. Wow, that's providence. You thought you were rich because you were smart. Oh, no. Shame on you. You thought you were rich because you had a good education from a good school. No. You thought you were rich because you were creative and innovative and had good ideas. No. The Lord makes you rich. The Lord makes you poor. He's in charge of those things. Deuteronomy 10, 18. It's by the Lord's power we obtain wealth. Not by your power. Not by your might. Not by your intellect. It's by the Lord's power. That's why there needs to be a conviction of God's unalterable providence. Listen, you have what you have because in God's providence, that's what you have. But I just want a little bit more. Don't you think that God knows you want more? And if God knew you could handle more, guess what? He'd give you more. But he knows the deceitfulness of riches. He knows how easily you'll forget your God. God's providence rules and reigns over all. Number six. A little longer than six minutes. There needs to be a concentration on his un. Shakeable promises. A concentration on his unshakable promises. If he says he's never going to leave you nor forsake you, it's a promise. If the Lord is your helper, it's a promise. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's a promise. It's unshakable. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things, what things? Shall be added unto you. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you wear. And certainly don't worry about how long or how short you live. That's all in Matthew chapter 6. Because all that is providential. Eat what you want. You're still going to die on time. What you eat does not cause you to live longer. God's in charge of all those things. Right? So therefore, we realize that God will clothe us. He will feed us. He will take care of us. Psalm chapter 37. 
Verse number 25, I've been old and I've been young, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. That's what David says. And so there needs to be a concentration on God's unshakable promises. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse number 7, Solomon says this, Two things I ask of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Christendom, when he was about to to die in the book of... in the, I forget where I read it from. As he stood before the Roman emperor and was threatened under banishment. It says, thou canst not banish me for this world is my father's house. To which the emperor said, I will slay thee then. Nah, thou canst not, said the noble champion of the faith. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away thy treasures. Nah. But thou canst not, for my treasures are in heaven, and my heart is there also. But I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. Nah. Thou canst not. For I have a friend in heaven, from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Why? Because he recognized the Savior as the all-sufficient, supreme God of his life. How about you? That's the way you are? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. The opportunity you give us to be in your word. And pray that as we partake at the Lord's table, you'd remind us once again of the great, all-sufficient, satisfying provision of your salvation for our all souls. In Jesus' name, amen.